Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Fintrepreneur. This is Eli and Dave. And today we've got our good friend, uh, Diraj Goel, joining us from Get Fresh Ventures. He's the founder there. And we're really excited to talk about getting access to venture capital in today's market. So today we'll talk a bit more specifically about Diraj's journey, about how you work currently with companies to help them go to market and raise some funds and so on, as well as sort of your thoughts on how things have changed from just about six months ago to today. Let's dive right in, Diraj, if that's okay with you. I looked at your LinkedIn, try to get a, a bit more of a, you know, to narrow it down. So, okay, exactly what is what is Diraj doing? And you've clearly helped hundreds of companies at this point. But before getting into sort of the advisory side, you had, you know, your own sort of career uh, working full-time with companies. So just tell us about that journey and, and you know, what you're doing today. Yeah. So um, my background has been mostly in technology and IT. I, I was on the path to becoming a a CIO or a CTO in venture, uh, going into venture capital wasn't really something that I had considered initially. My career started uh, when I was in my teens, starting my first company, doing a managed services, uh, providing a managed services model. This was in the early 90s and 93. I was still a teen and uh, and I got a bunch of contracts uh, servicing computers. And back then, servicing computers was a lot of hardware and a little bit of software. And, you know, there was one or two computers in, in a in a manufacturing site, and I got paid 250 bucks a, a, a month to, to go in and service it once or twice a month. Uh, it was great. I was uh, I was making more money than my dad, and I got hit by the entrepreneurial bug. Uh, but uh, as I pursued that down my career, I started to look at, uh, at at the startup space. It was burgeoning quite a bit in the in in the later 90s, and you know, with everything, e dash was uh, was all the rage, and that was the dot com boom. And I landed at a learning management uh, company called WebCT, which was one of the first uh, learning management platforms uh, online and worked there from uh, 99 to 2005 and went through the first uh, dot-com bust in the first downturn in my career. And then through that journey, I learned about how to build companies, uh, high growth companies in a new uh, segment and build a category. Uh, and do it in, uh, during a period of austerity. So you have no money, no budget. You have to scale and grow. And you've got to meet a new market that doesn't really understand what the hell you're doing and trying to sell it to that space uh, with technology. From there, I went on to uh, founding a, a pro services firm again, but this time more on the medium business side in terms of providing IT strategy. And then moved on to a cybersecurity firm. I worked at Sophos for a while, um, led their technical, global technical operations. After we had uh, we sold uh, WebCT to Blackboard, that's when I moved on and I worked at Sophos uh, handling their technical operations globally. So, you know, when you get a virus update uh, that's a zero day and, and it has to go out in seconds, architecture and infrastructure was the one that I designed for their, their global threat response. From there, I started a pro services firm in cybersecurity. I got it up to several million dollars. We were servicing Vanock, which was the Vancouver Olympics group in terms of their cybersecurity strategy, a bunch of large companies, including including YBR, actually, and then moved on to Vision Critical. I mean, that, that was a bunch of stints in other organizations and advisory and management advisory between them, but... Uh, Vision Critical was with Angus Reed uh, and Andrew Reed, and I'm sure some of you have may have heard of that company. It's called Alida now, and we are a young pro services company trying to build a software platform and scale up to being a SaaS company. And we did that over a few years until like, uh, 2016 when I left, and we we sold off our pro services arm, and so we we went from single digit millions to over 
over 120 million in revenue during that period. I took a break for a bit and, and I was at Hootsuite as their first head of operations and ran there the entire global operations and strategy as well. Everything from their QPRs to the executive offsites to analytics, business operations, business technology, everything that every executive wanted to handle, which was included facilities. And uh, left Hootsuite uh, right um, before my, my kid was born because I realized that I didn't want to work 15 hour uh, days anymore. And uh, I've got a baby on the way and I had a larger mortgage and I, I kind of kicked myself in the ass because I was wondering what the hell I was going to do now. And uh, I worked, I took a, a stint at BC Tech, which is an industry group here. They had an accelerator called Hypergrowth that needed to be revamped. I rewrote the whole program and delivered two cohorts, of which all those companies got funded. And several of our anchor uh, companies, or soon-to-be anchor companies, including Jane Software was one of them, they actually got funded right out of our program. Actually, right out of the GTM presentation that they did, but the numbers uh, uh, did really well. One of our board members actually invested in the company. Um, and I started getting fresh ventures using the model that I developed in the hyper growth program, which has now been syndicated. And we used that model to work with companies to help them get uh, to the point of being investable. And that model of hyper growth was based on all my years of uh, working on both sides of the the table, both from the investor side, the, the founder side, and the operator side. Uh, having a deep understanding of what it takes to build a company with the right unit economics and a tight cash flow, which hasn't been a great uh, thesis in times of money flowing, where you don't really need to do the work on your numbers and your GTM if you're going to raise $2 million or nothing. But with this recent downturn, it's become evident that everybody needs to answer those questions. And, uh, and since then, like for example, we just signed three companies last week because everybody needs to answer those questions. Raj, you, you mentioned that you were at WebCT, um, and I think you said until 2005, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, you were there, obviously you mentioned that was when you first experienced a downturn. How would you compare what you're seeing today to what you saw you know, 20 some odd years ago? What you saw there was an exuberance in the new frontier. It was the unknown. You couldn't really build any metrics other than eyeballs, right? So everyone just threw a whole lot of money. There were companies that were raising on, on a pitch deck and raising $5 million on a pitch deck that promised to solve all the world's problems and, and with, without even a clear uh, view of what their revenue plan was. Forget about unit economics. You know, you had to have E-something go public and, and your stock would be at about $2. When the downturn occurred, the reality of the uh, of the dot com world uh, hit everyone at face. Microsoft was getting uh, brought into court uh, for the DOJ breakup. There was a lot of bad news around tech, and all these companies that raised a whole bunch of money with no real business models or plans of how they were going to make any money were starting to get sued by investors, and dot com started uh, uh, falling down. So you had a whole bunch of money deployed in companies that weren't really actually doing anything. It wasn't that they had upside down economics. They, they had no economics. That was a different paradigm, right? So you had, you had a situation where investors completely pulled back from tech because they didn't really even understand where it was going to our current situation where you've got these companies, you, they are, they've got captivated audience, they are generating revenue, they just have upside down economics because they overspent on growth. They just assume that uh, the party was always gonna be uh, happening, growth was it, is it just gonna come unfredded like it did uh, during the pandemic, so everyone overspent. 
So this is more of a correction than a chasm of disillusionment uh, that you see in a higher cycle. So, but it's a course correction, but it's too much of a correction, which will then taper off, I suspect, in the next 18 months to some level of reality. And then we'll all forget again and then start throwing money uh, at, yeah, at yeah. the wall again. And in about seven years, we're going to be in, yeah, to, uh, we're going to be back into a bull market, right? So we've done this twice in my life, and the velocity of, of change from one ebb to flow is getting faster and faster. The capital markets like to overshoot in both directions. Yeah, you got retail investors driving sentiment, and we've seen with GameStop and the like, uh, you know, the impact a bunch of retail investors can make. If the whole market gets freaked out. You're seeing, you know, GameStop type movement across the market. Yeah, I thought I was living in a virtual world when that was happening. I, I couldn't believe <laughs> how <laughs> yeah, insane that yeah. was. To stay on that topic, Darash. So, you know, what is a go-to-market strategy as as opposed to also kind of what does it look like to prepare for investment just at a high level? Mm-hmm. And then how does that differentiate? Again, like you said, I know it's pretty straightforward that people were just throwing money. And now it's kind of a bit more restrictive, but how is the difference in presenting look like now? Six months ago, the way we saw go-to-market was considered analysis paralysis. Today, it's actually prudent planning. And what that means is that a go-to-market is in, this is our, the channel of acquisition, this is how much we're going to pay, this is our CAC, here's our LTP, done, we're good to go. It's actually more than that. It's it's really understanding what uh, your targets, what are those unit economics that are going to get to those targets, how you came up with those unit economics. And do they actually make sense? You can't have a linear CAC and say, okay, yeah, that's what our CAC is going to be over the next uh, 18 months. And this is how we're going to generate revenue. And here's our numbers. Your CAC is going to be higher. It's going to go lower over time. You're going to have to have a strategy around what is it that you're going to do, uh, how you're going to develop your channels in a way that's going to make them more efficient and, and produce a greater result. And also what's your product roadmap that's going to drive retention and, and give you more of a moat. Your go-to-market is how your company is going to succeed against that revenue plan and breaking it down into uh, roadmaps for your sales team, your marketing teams, your, your product teams, your customer success teams, and having a clear idea of what those KPIs are that are going to drive in terms of leading indicators and lagging indicators that's going to get you to uh, your revenue. Then your goal would be to meet or beat those estimates as much as possible because you've already baked in all the thinking that you need. And that go-to-market essentially is the the organizational roadmap that you can communicate to your team in a clear and effective way that you can then ultimately translate into OKR models for execution. That is not analysis paralysis. That's prudent planning. And if you're a public company, it's kind of expected. Analysts are expecting you to, to communicate a lot of those kind of things. If you're not a public company or a private company, you don't have to do it to that extent. But you're going to have to start doing it if you're going to need to start posting numbers on the board that you're committing to investors. And if you miss those numbers, then you're starting to talk about down rounds and running out of cash uh, before your, you know, your next uh, funding cycle. There's a lot of downsides. When cash is cheap, just spend as much as possible, drive growth, get your top line number. You can be upside down in your economics. You're satisfying investors and giving them a great IAR, but in a down market, everyone's reserving cash. And better be clear that if you're going to make a million dollars, you can't spend two million to get there. Or if you do, you better have a plan to make sure that you have more than that two million dollars in the bank to cover the next million that you need to make. And that's the go-to-market. It's it's a full stack plan that you can execute over the next 24 months with more fidelity uh, on the plan uh, for the next six months. And so when you're advising companies, has it changed from when you would tell them to go try to raise money? Like 
six months ago versus today? Is it still the same? It's pretty much the same. Here's the thing. Like a company built on strong fundamentals, the, the when you need money doesn't change really. I mean, it depends on your cost of operations and your cost of revenue and whether those costs are going up now uh, versus uh, before or they're going down. But those are the, the really the only predicator of what when you're going to need to raise money. Now, when cash is cheap, you could argue that, hey, why don't we raise cash now? We can get a higher valuation. We can raise that money and put it in the bank and we can use that money however we want. But to be clear, the moment you raise money, your plan in terms of your revenue plan is no longer your revenue plan is your investor's revenue plan. And at that point, you may be committing to a revenue plan that you're not going to hit, which means that you're going to run out of cash before you hit that revenue plan and your valuation at the later date may be lower than the valuation that you raised at. And a lot of companies are starting to see that transpire with down rounds because they're in a distressed situation. They've got you know six months of runway left and their only option right now outside of raising cash is laying people off. The fact is, if if you look at uh, the standard models of valuation, I call it the Kelly Blue Book value as opposed to the high value. The raise cash uh, line at the sand is pretty much the same. The only changes uh, to that line is going to be based on the hype factor and what you're willing to bet on uh, in terms of where you're going to be. So, Diraj, what kind of companies are you interested in working with or work with currently? Our company was uh, was started on the the basis that we could find purpose-driven companies, the ones that are working for the greater good and help them build profitable models for growth, get, help them get investment. The principle there that we're pursuing is that you know companies that are doing the greater good by helping them grow and scale and achieve uh, greater heights in revenue, we were expanding their reach and their reach meant that you were pursuing their purpose and achieving the, uh, the good that they're, they're trying to, uh, to make. Now, that alone isn't enough. What is critical is that they need to have a captivated audience for one, and they need to have an economic model that's truly viable. In simple terms for us is if we can find companies that have these captivated audiences or actually identify a captivated audience on behalf of the the founder, those are the companies that are going to be the most interesting to us. Okay. Well, I had a just a question that completely off the topics, but I, you know, I've seen that you've grown your LinkedIn so much over the last little bit. Uh, you're mm-hmm. clearly active on that. Give us some tips and tricks. What, what do you what do you do on on LinkedIn that sort of really helped you build that audience to twenty thousand plus? You know, I, I don't post very often. There are some weeks where I'll post every other day, or maybe sometimes every day. Like this week, I don't think I've posted very much, but I do comment a lot. You know, I like to, to engage on different points of, of thinking and engaging with folks uh, on the platform uh, based on opinions or thoughts or ideas that are shared. But when I do post, they're mostly about personal stories, uh, things that I've, I've noticed, I've experienced. Maybe I'm talking to a founder about something and yeah, we got to an epiphany or it was a poignant conversation and just posting about those is just those personal experiences that I've had. Yeah, I think that's kind of the thing you'll notice when you spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. The people that are building the biggest audience are people that are sort of being the realist and they're just sort of being themselves. I know there's mm-hmm. a few examples that we both know of people that have had tremendous growth on their brand. Uh, on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, something to keep in mind for everyone, because it's a huge part, I'm sure, of your business and and people kind of relating to, oh, I, I know Raj, I've seen him a bunch. I mean, that's how we met. So yeah, LinkedIn, I think, is a, is a good channel for everyone and more people should use it, I think. Yeah, our director of yeah. marketing, uh, Sean's always on my case to post more. I'm trying to build it up, but I got a ways to go before I catch up to yeah. you, Raj. Yeah, I frankly did not start off in trying to build a brand on LinkedIn. And by any means, I, I was just trying to share uh, 
uh, thoughts and and I just love it as a resource for uh, having a finger on the pulse in terms of what people were thinking and talking about and because it became mm-hmm. hyper relevant in our conversations with founders on, on a daily basis. Then as I had these conversations, I was having a similar conversations with founders over and over again. It just became this body of thinking that I, I felt, why don't I just put it online and, and let more people benefit from the common conversations that are having? And, and it started to snowball from there, frankly. Thank you so much for your time today, uh, Duraj. I think this was really valuable. Mm-hmm. I know hopefully your entire audience will see this um, and get some value from it. Thanks again for joining us. And thanks for everyone for listening to Fintrepreneur. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. Thank you.